All right, church, it's great to be with you. Um, We are continuing our series as we journey through 1 Corinthians. Our series is called Sex, Suits, Spouses, and Singles. Today, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, turn there with me. And I don't know about you, uh, but personally, I have found this series to be powerfully profound, not just for the world or for the church, but in my own life. And so I hope that you've experienced that as well. Today, I think we'll be more of the same. We are continuing a little sort of two-part mini-series in the middle of our series on marriage and singleness. Last week, if you were with us, you'll remember that we talked about sex in marriage. It was an exciting Sunday. And this week, we are talking about struggling with marriage. So sex and marriage, now struggling with marriage. And uh, last week, we talked about how Paul transitions to this section of the letter with this statement. Now for the issues you wrote about. In other words, now Paul is going to be answering some of the questions that these Corinthian Christians have about what it means to walk with Jesus and follow him in this world. And this church had a lot of questions. They had a lot of struggles. They had a lot of disagreements about what it looked like to live the Christian life. And one of them was around the subject of, should I be single or should I be married? As a follower of Jesus, which way of living was better? And the reason they were asking is because there were some different ideas in this church. There were some different factions. There were Jewish Christians in this church. And because they came from an Orthodox Jewish perspective, they believed that to really be in God's will and to fully live out who he wants you to be, a person needed to be married. That's God's plan. That's what they said. That was group one. But then there was another group that was emerging And this group was embracing a different understanding. They said the real way to follow Jesus, the real way to be spiritual was to embrace a life of singleness or to at least be celibate. And so now Paul gets word of this debate and he hears about these questions and he's going to write to give them instruction and to correct their thinking. In fact, last week at the end, of his very strong exhortation for married couples to not set aside sexual activity, to not, to not opt out of sexual intimacy. Paul says this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am. Paul was single and he was celibate and he was content in that. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift. Another has that. Let me break down Paul's message for you here. It's, it's pretty simple. Faithfully following Jesus does not mean being single, and it does not mean having a spouse. Paul says, whatever your marital status is, it should be viewed as a gift from God with certain advantages that you've been offered to serve God and his kingdom. So if you are listening today and you are single, You may not feel like this is true, but scripture says that it is. Your singleness is a gift. It comes with certain challenges, certainly, but it also comes with certain opportunities, with certain benefits. 
benefits that married people just do not have. You can walk with Jesus and contribute to the body of Christ, his church, in ways that are essential and distinct from the married people in your life. Your singleness is a gift. Likewise, on the other hand, if you're here today and you're married, your marriage is a gift. And you may not always feel like that is true, but God says it is. Your marriage, it not only conforms you to the image of Christ, but it's also a representation of Christ. It's a representation of the gospel. It's a rep- it represents in our world the unconditional love that Jesus has for his bride. Married people, when you decide to love your spouse and be faithful to your spouse and and protect your spouse and serve your spouse, even when they don't deserve it, you're a reflection of the way that God loves us. You reflect the gospel in the world. And so now Paul, he's gonna take this understanding of singleness and marriage And he's going to apply it to four different groups of people in the Corinthian church who are all feeling uh, different pressures and struggles as it related to their marital status. So here we go. Struggling with marriage. Group number one, verse eight. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Do you hear what Paul said there? Listen to what he says. And he says this, by the way, as a single person. It is good, it is good for them to stay unmarried. Now the Greek word for good here, if you really translate it accurately, it actually means good. It really does. In fact, it can be translated as admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, precious, or commendable. Church, family, we must let this truth set in. To be single is not just acceptable. To be single is not just all right. To be single is not just a barely passing grade. It's commendable, it's precious, it's excellent not to be married. So in our body, we must stop telling and treating our single people like they are half people. Like they aren't really living their full life until they're married. That is just unbiblical. To be single is good. But, but, Paul says, verse nine, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And now the passage gets kind of fun. A couple of things we need to understand here. First of all, Paul is not saying here that if you are single and you've ever had sexual feelings or desires, you need to get married ASAP. No, that is silly and it's unrealistic. What he's talking about here is the ability and the calling to control and restrain and not be driven by your sexual desires. He's saying it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And what he's doing is he's talking to specific single people in this Corinthian church who are feeling the pressure to stay single. They're being told to really be spiritual, to really serve Christ is to say stay single. And yet they've met someone, another believer, 
who they like a whole lot and who they're attracted to physically. And now they're struggling to stay pure. And so Paul says, if that's the case, if that's you, just get married. Again, he's not saying if you're single and you have sexual desires, go out and find a spouse because, of course, finding a spouse is not that easy. It's not just like going to the store and picking out a shirt. There's not a footnote at the end of this passage where you kind of go to the appendix in the back and it says, all right, here's the, here is the online dating app you should use to find your spouse. If you have sexual desires, use Bumble, not Tinder. No, it's not in there. Here's another thing I want to acknowledge here for some of you that are listening. Because you're saying to yourself, you're single and you're saying, yes, I'm single. I have sexual desires. I'm not burning for anyone in particular, but I am burning. <laughs> I do like wish that I could experience sex and sexuality in a different way. And you're telling me, Pastor Dave, that the scriptures say that, that singleness is a gift, but I don't feel like it is. It doesn't feel like a gift to me. Let me say a couple things to you. One, if you're single right now, you do have the gift of singleness. And, and you may not have it forever. Sometimes we approach this idea of singleness and the gift of singleness in the church, like you're either called to it for life or, or you should work to get out of it ASAP because it's not your calling. And I do not think this is a biblical approach. Maybe you've simply been given the gift of singleness for a while, for a season, maybe for a few years, maybe for the next decade. I don't know, but the idea is that instead of, instead of spending all of your time wondering if and when that gift will end, embrace the season you're in. Don't be so focused on changing your marital status that you miss out on the gift of the status that you have been given. That's number one. Here's two. Spend lots of time and energy on becoming the right person instead of just meeting the right partner. And sure, it's okay to desire to be married. That's, that's an okay desire and feeling. That's fine. Be open to it. Put yourself out there even. Go to places where you might meet other single followers of Jesus Christ. But don't just look for the right girl. Become the right guy. Become the right woman. See, much of the way I believe you do this is by living into the calling that you have been given right now as a person who's single. Living into that and following God in that role to serve him and advance his kingdom as a part of the body of Christ. Single people, you must resist the temptation to really start your life once you're married because God has big things, important things for you to do for him right now. So that's Paul's encouragement for group number one, singles. Now, group number two, verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. And what Paul's saying here when he says, not I, but the Lord, he's just saying Jesus already had some things to say about what I'm gonna say. 
In other words, I'm really just sort of quoting what Jesus says in the Gospels here. And one of the messages that the church in Corinth was getting, mostly from those who were promoting celibacy, was that since the sexual part of your relationship is now a no-go, you might as well just divorce your spouse and devote yourself fully to Christ. That was actually being promoted in the church. And Paul simply says, no, don't do this. (laughs) This is not God's plan. It does not line up with the clear and consistent teaching of the Bible because marriage is supposed to be a lifetime commitment. But some of the Christians in this church had already done this. They'd already taken this step and separated from their spouses for these sort of weird and off-kilter spiritual reasons. And so Paul continues, a wife must not separate from her husband, verse 11. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Paul's saying, hey, if you have already done this sort of weird Christian divorce thing, then now here are your options. Either remain unmarried or, or reconcile with your spouse. That's your choices. Now, let me add a really important footnote here. Paul is not talking about every single case. He does not address here, for example, cases of adultery, cases of abuse, or abandonment. He is speaking in this passage about a very specific way of divorce and reason for divorce that was happening in this church. And he's saying spiritual divorce for Christ does not line up with God's instruction for Christian marriage. And I bring this up because sometimes these verses that are meant for a very specific group get applied broadly to all groups and all situations. And when we do this, I believe that we miss the full and robust teaching of the scriptures about marriage and divorce and what God has to say about it. So if you're listening today and you want to get the big picture, if you want to understand more holistically what the Bible says about marriage and divorce, I'm not going to get into all of the nitty gritty on that today. We don't have time, but I will refer you back to a sermon that I preached a number of years ago in a series we did called Wrestling with God. And in that series, I tackled the subject of divorce, what Jesus has to say about it, and what I believe the scriptures teach when it comes to this very, very important and sensitive subject. So I don't always promote my own sermons, but in this case, I went back and listened to it from a few years back, and it's a good one. So if you're interested, take a listen to that if it's relevant for you. But back to this week. Paul, again, is saying, if you are married and there's not unrepentant adultery, abuse, or abandonment, stay married. Fight for your marriage. You see, the problem facing the Corinthians was in a lot of ways the same problem that we face today, and that's that the culture was influencing their views of marriage much too Heavily, this happens all the time in our world. Our world has a lot to say about what marriage really is, and we're all receiving those messages. Let me just offer you a few messages from our world about what marriage is. One, our world will tell us that marriage is primarily an emotional attachment to another person. 
And by the way, I am, I'm not saying that to emotionally attach to another person is, is not a big deal. It is. It's a big deal. It's a big thing. But our culture says it's everything. Our culture says you meet someone, you fall in love, and then your goal is to try and keep those intense feelings, that eros, those, those romantic passions kind of churning for as long as you possibly can. But eventually, when those feelings fade, and, and they will, and they'll go up and down in different seasons of your life. But our culture says when those feelings end, the marriage ends too. It must be over. I just don't love him anymore. So if that's the case, what is the marriage? Marriage is just an emotional attachment between people. It's just a place where you get your need for passion and romance met. That's common thinking in our world. Here's, here's another thing that our world tells us about marriage. And I got this one from a pastor in New York City by the name of John Tyson. He says, marriage in our world is secular salvation for many people. Listen to this. When you take God out of the picture, out of your life, you don't get rid of the longings that you have for transcendence and wonder and eternity and unconditional love. You just reroute them and you reroute them oftentimes to the closest thing to God, which is people made in his image. So friends, in our culture, people frequently take all of these deep, deep longings that they have for meaning and purpose and significance and acceptance, and they put them onto another person. You complete me. I'm looking to you to complete me. You make my life matter. You give me significance. And for some people, most of life, the primary kind of goal of life is actually finding this, finding the one true love partner, the other half, the one who will make me whole. And if you stop and think about it, that is enormously destructive, isn't it? Taking a finite human being and saddling them with infinite expectations and then we wonder, why can't they live up? Why, why doesn't this relationship work out? Why can't it last? Here, here's the third approach to marriage that our culture promotes. If you find a spectacular person, then you'll be happy and your life will be full. It's just all about finding that one magical, amazing human to marry. That is what will really bring happiness to your life. And we've been given this idea, friends, that if, if I can find Superman or Wonder Woman, they will make my life good. But the problem with this idea, and I don't know quite how to tell you this, but here's the problem. You're not really all that spectacular, at least all the time. <laughs> and neither am I. We want this spectacular, amazing Superman, Wonder Woman person, but we're not that person. We live in a culture that says, you know, if you can only find that one spectacular person, someone who's emotionally available, but not needy, organized and yet spontaneous, incredibly attractive, but doesn't care if I let myself go, 
Someone who makes a lot of money, but doesn't work that much. So they're available to me and they can take me out to dinner whenever I want to go, right? See, the idea is we're looking for this fantasy person to make us happy. John, John Tyson again says this. I love this quote. Few of us live with oversexed supermodels. Instead, we live with ordinary people. People who get bad breath, body odor, and unruly hair who menstruate and experience occasional impotence, occasional pee on the seat, and who have bad moods and embarrass us sometimes in public. Friends, the world is telling us something about marriage that will only lead to disappointment and failure. But God says marriage is something different. Marriage is not a contract under the sovereignty of self. It's a covenant under the sovereignty of God. It's not you live up to your end of the bargain and I'll live up to my end of the bargain. And if we both can do that, then we'll be happy. And by the way, the judge of whether or not you're living up to your end of the bargain is me. You see, secular marriage says, who calls the shots and makes the rules for our marriage? I do, you do, we do. Who do we answer to in this marriage? We just answer to ourselves. But God says Christian marriage is different. It's a covenant, not under our sovereignty, but under his sovereignty. In other words, in Christian marriage, God calls the shots and makes the rules. In Christian marriage, I commit to serve you and love you and protect you and be faithful to you, not as long as you're living up to my expectations, but as long as God tells me to, even when you're not living up to my expectations. Friends, here's, here's a really simple reminder today and might be one of the most profound things that I say. What makes a Christian marriage different from every other marriage is simply that it has Christ in it. That there is this consistent and conscientious submission to a third party in the union, that Jesus himself is in your marriage and he is calling the shots for you. So if you're married, Paul says, he's understanding Christian marriage. He says, stay married and love and serve and forgive and pursue your spouse as long as Christ calls you to. All right, we've got to keep moving. I wish I could say more, but here we go. Group three, those married to an unbeliever who wants to stay in the marriage, verses 12 to 14. To the rest, I say this, verse 12, I, not the Lord. In other words, Jesus, Paul's saying here, I'm not quoting Jesus directly anymore. Like I'm, I'm offering words that are coming from me, the apostle, and they're still inspired and they're still authoritative, but I'm not just quoting the Lord Jesus anymore. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But, but as it is, they are holy. Now, what's happening here is that these Corinthian Christians 
um, had come to Christ after they were married, a lot of them. And so now they find themselves in the situation where they are married to an unbeliever. And there was this fear, this sort of belief running through the church that my unbelieving spouse is going to corrupt me. And so Paul addresses this. And what he says is, no, that's not true. And actually, in addition, if you want to get really honest, he says, they won't corrupt you. You will sanctify them. Now, that's a big kind of theologically robust, strong word, isn't it? Sanctification. So let's talk about what Paul means here. What he's not saying is that a person can be saved through marriage. He's not saying your spouse is saved because we know in Scripture that a person is saved um, personally by the Lord with between he and them in a relationship. Instead, what Paul is saying is that the marriage will always be benefited by the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believing spouse. And he, and really he just kind of draws on some common sense because he believes that in marriage, a couple is one. That's what scripture says. That's what God says, that you become one with that other person. And so if, if one spouse gets blessed financially, both will benefit financially. If one spouse experiences emotional healing, that will have a positive effect on the other spouse. And, and likewise, Paul says, the sanctifying work of God in your life, if you're a believer, will have an impact on your spouse, even if they don't believe. Some of the benefit of that will rub off on them because they are one with you. Now, in addition... Some in the church were worried that their unbelieving spouse would corrupt the children. And Paul seems to say no to that as well. No, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world, he is saying. So trust that your sanctification is more powerful than your spouse's unbelief. And as long as they are committed to the marriage, you should be also. Now I want to pause here for just a second and say, if you are a follower of Jesus who is married to an unbeliever, I know this can be hard. I know that this can be exhausting. I know that this can be frustrating. I know that you can easily get discouraged. But let me remind you of this truth. The light and the strength and the power and the joy and the peace that lives in you is stronger than the darkness in this world and you are called to be a blessing in your home. That might be your primary and most important ministry. One author I read this week said, and I love this, how many Christians does it take in a family to make that house a Christian home? One because the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit in you is contagious in your family, so you hang on. All right, one, one more side note here before we get to our final point. I need to say this. This passage is not teaching that it is okay for a Christian to get married to an unbeliever. If you are already married, that's one thing. But if you're not, the Bible very clearly teaches that a follower of Jesus should not marry someone who is not also fully committed to following Jesus as Lord in this world. So young people, please, please, please hear me on this. 
If you are dating someone, flirting with someone, seeing someone romantically, chatting it up with someone a little too much over text, and they are not surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if they are not committed to following Jesus' lead and taking his direction for their life, don't mess with it, don't dabble with it, don't even think it. That's the warning of scripture. And I have much more to say on that, but we do need to finish up group four. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, if you're, if you're married to an unbeliever and they leave the marriage, let it be so. The brother or sister, and he's talking here about the Christian spouse who was left, the brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. God, Paul uses the word bound here, and this is what he's saying. He's saying, if your spouse leaves you, if they abandon the marriage, you are now free, you are unbound, you are now free to remain single or if the Lord calls you to remarry a Christian spouse. And he says, God has called us to live in peace. In other words, if this happens to you, if this has happened to you, if you fight for your marriage and your spouse leaves, Paul is saying, you can have peace. God does not want you to live in a state of guilt or a state of shame or uncertainty or with this lingering sense that maybe you should have done more. Because what some of the Christians in in Corinth were saying, um, and maybe you can relate to this, they were saying, but I so desperately wanted my spouse to get saved. I, I, I so desperately wanted the Lord to use me in their life to bring them to Jesus and it never happened and then they left. So now who's going to lead them to Christ? That was their stress, that was their struggle and they had no peace. And so Paul closes our passage today with these words. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife. You see, sometimes, even though it's hard, for the sake of peace in our own lives, God calls us, allows us to let people go. To trust that he can work in their lives outside of us and beyond us. That he still has a plan, even though he's allowing us to release them. You see, behind this is this understanding that God loves people more than we do. That he longs for people to come into a saving relationship with his son. See, behind this is is the biblical conviction that, that God's heart and desire is that every person would believe that Jesus' death was the price that was paid for their sin. And that they would trust Jesus' resurrection as the victory over sin and death that was won for them. That's what God longs for, friends. And sometimes he says, it's not your job to run after them anymore, but I'm still running after them. Maybe you're listening today. Maybe you're hearing these words and a lot of people have been running after you with the gospel over the years, but you have never trusted Jesus Christ as Lord. If that's the case, if that's you, 
Sometimes people are called to back off, but God will never back off because he loves you and he longs for you to be in right relationship with him. And so today I invite you and I challenge you and I ask you, will you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? What are you waiting for? Will you allow the one who created you and loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, a plan of peace and meaning and joy and fulfillment and an eternity with him, will you allow the God of the universe to come into your life today? If so, if the Holy Spirit has been pulling you towards the Lord and and today the Holy Spirit is saying, it's time, it's time to get off the fence. It's time to declare Jesus as Lord. I'm gonna pray in just a minute and I invite you just to pray in in the privacy of your own mind and heart. Just talk to your heavenly father. Just use the words that I say to lead your conversation with him. And so I'm gonna pray right now. And if you need to accept the Lord as savior, pray this prayer with me. Father, first of all, I just want to acknowledge um, that you're good, that you're powerful, that you're merciful, that you're loving, that you're kind and compassionate, and that you love us so much that you continue to pursue us constantly. And Father, if there are people listening today that have not stepped into a relationship with you, have not trusted the death and resurrection of your son, declared you God in their lives. I pray, God, that they would pray this prayer with me now. Lord, I need you. I need you in my life. I've searched for meaning and purpose in all sorts of different places. And all those places have come up empty, God. And so I need you to give me a hope that is secure and it will last. And so I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and that I'm saved by the grace that you offer through the death and the resurrection of your son. I surrender myself to you, Father. I I declare Jesus as Lord of my life. And I'm asking for you to come into my life and help me to walk with you, to shine for you, to experience your love and then to offer it to other people. God, I pray all this to you because you're trustworthy and you're good. And then Lord, we all just pray for the single people in our congregation. We pray for the married couples and we ask God that your your will and your ways will be manifest in us in whatever station we've been given in life. Meet us in those places, God. Guide us and lead us. And we pray it all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, friends. It's great to be with you, and we'll see you real soon.